This is an ABC podcast. Just how dangerous are the ageing oil tankers which help Russia dodge sanctions? The big danger is that the Dark Fleet will be involved in a catastrophic event which will produce an oil spill which won't have any insurance coverage and will cause, ultimately, the environment to pay the price. That's coming up shortly here on The Law Report. Hi, Damien Carrick with you. First, New South Wales police have withdrawn a number of COVID-19 fines that were due to be contested in the local court this week. Lawyers say this suggests police are considering the impact of a recent Supreme Court ruling that raised serious questions about the validity of 29,000 fines issued across New South Wales throughout the pandemic. The judge, who's just handed down her written reasons, found that two such fines were fundamentally flawed because they contained no details about what legislation or regulation the person had breached or what they would need to prove to contest the fine. So what type of fines are we talking about? I was sitting in Sydney Park, which is sort of near Newtown, St Peter's in the inner west of Sydney. Rowan Pank says that was back in August 2021. Me and my partner had just gone for a walk. It was one of the few things that we could do during the lockdown down to that time. It was a nice sunny day, so we thought we'd get a bit of exercise. And we'd been walking around for maybe half an hour, uh, decided to sit down uh, on the ground and four police officers came over and issued us with a on-the-spot $1,000 fine. In your conversations with the police officers and maybe in what you received via the mail a week later, what detail were you told about what offence you'd committed and what the basis of the fine was? It was very vague. I think the actual letter I received said failure to comply with Section 7, 8 and 9 in relation to COVID-19, something incredibly vague like that. So it was, it was actually quite difficult to, um, to try and contest the fine because I wasn't certain what they were actually saying that I'd done. So you became part of a test case, but authorities withdrew the fine just before the court hearing. Is that right? Yes, I think it was the, the day before the actual case went through. Um, I got an email at about 11 o'clock at night saying they'd, they'd withdrawn my fine. Just to be clear, you were very happy to comply with COVID restrictions. The issue for you was that you felt that you were in compliance and you didn't deserve the fine. Is that the correct way of thinking about your state of mind? Yeah, exactly. Like, I... I think, you know, it's a once in a lifetime kind of event, this sort of health crisis, and I don't want anyone to get sick. I didn't want anyone to get sick. And so I was following the rules as best as I could. But I genuinely thought that I hadn't done anything wrong. You know, I thought the officers had just made a mistake. And and I hoped that by going through the, the Service New South Wales system of contesting the fine, that it would get cleared up. And clearly, that wasn't the case. I suppose people issued with COVID-19 fines will have very different states of mind. Some people will think, well, I'm not breaking a law which I respect. Other people will be saying, I don't respect the law. Um, other people will be you know, reckless or indifferent as to that. And I guess, do you think that everybody in every category has benefited from, from this legal outcome perhaps? Uh, and do you have any thoughts about that? I think based on my story, 
and seeing how many fines were being given out at the time, um, I'm certain the majority of the people given fines were, were incorrectly issued them. So, so I'm glad that I could help and be a part of cancelling all those fines. Um, I'm, I'm certain that some people were going out of their way to break the rules, um, which was not good for the for the health of the country, I suppose. And maybe those fines should have should have stood. But if they were issuing them with you know, not enough information on the fines, then that's a that's a separate issue to whether or not people did anything wrong. And and with regards to that, I think the fines should have been cancelled. Rowan Pank, thank you. Thank you for telling me about your fine. Thank you. Rowan's lawyer is Samantha Lee from the Redfern Legal Centre. Sam Lee, Rowan Pank's fine was withdrawn. Tell me briefly about the other two plaintiffs in the test case. We had two plaintiffs who were issued with a COVID fine. One was issued with a fine that was the same as Rowan's, which is the failure to comply with 789 direction. And the other fine involved a gathering fine. In these two cases, I was of the view that the police had actually applied the law incorrectly in that case that they didn't understand the orders that were in place and that these two fines needed to be reviewed. And one case involved a bloke called Brendan Beam. I think he's a cancer sufferer who was going for a walk in Bronte, I think Bronte Beach, where he met a neighbour and struck up a conversation. The other one was Teal Ells, who took her son to a park in Ramsgate and struck up a conversation with another parent. They're the two plaintiffs that you successfully took to the Supreme Court. That's right. Two plaintiffs who didn't want to be flouting the laws, but really were just trying to go about their daily lives in trying to adhere to the public health orders, but uh, were fined anyway. So what did Justice Dina Yahia say in her written reasons, which have just been published? In summary, Damien, what uh, Her Honour said is that if someone is issued with a COVID fine or any fine in general, that that person must understand what they have been fined for. In that sense, the fine itself must contain enough information that it's not ambiguous to the person as to why they were fined and also, more importantly, how they can contest that fine. And was Justice Yahia referring to just these two fines or all the thousands of fines which were issued along the way? Well, really, this case is not just about COVID fines, although those were the fines before Her Honour. What Her Honour's judgment is about is to do with penalty notices in general in New South Wales. So she was considering what needs to be on a penalty notice to make that penalty notice valid under Section 20 of the Fines Act. Okay, so about 60,000 COVID fines were issued in New South Wales during the pandemic. Now, 33,000 were withdrawn late last year when the government admitted that it had overstepped the mark. This was at the time that the, the, this, um, this case was being heard by the Supreme Court. On what basis did they withdraw 30,000 fines and leave another 29,000 remaining and, and still remaining? 
Well, what uh, New South Wales Revenue did is they looked at the two fines that were before Her Honour, which was the 789 fine and also the gathering fine. And they had uh, decided that because Her Honour had found in November that those two fines were not fines, in fact, they were invalid, that they would withdraw all of those fines that had been issued However, now that we have the written judgment and reasons for Her Honour finding those fines invalid, it now means that all other COVID fines which do not adhere to the specifications Her Honour outlines, which includes uh, the fine should contain the offence for which the person has allegedly breached, then all those other fines fall over as well. Okay, so you've written to New South Wales Police and you've said, look at these written reasons from the Supreme Court of New South Wales, please withdraw the remaining 29,000 fines. Have you heard back? We have heard that they are considering what to do with these fines but have not come out with a statement at the moment. But we expect that they must come out with something soon because there are matters before the court at this very moment. Now, your clients, I take it, like Rowan Pank, were happy to comply with COVID restrictions and disputed that they were not complying um, as they understood their obligations. But a lot of people deliberately flouted the law. A lot of people recklessly flouted the law. Are you comfortable with that outcome, that a whole bunch of people who turned their nose up at the public health orders are going to get off? I am because the people that we advised at Redfern Legal Centre over the pandemic period, which was in its hundreds, they were majority of those people were not flouting the laws. In fact, we found that police had applied the law incorrectly. On top of that, we had public health orders in New South Wales, which changed over the pandemic period 266 times. So it really made it impossible for not only police to keep up with the changing rules, but also for people on the ground to keep up with what was going on. Tell me briefly about some of the clients. I think you had about 100 come and see you over the course of the pandemic who were being issued with this type of fine. Tell me about a few of them. Yeah, so we had a a young uh, man. He was from overseas, didn't speak much English. He was by himself in his car. He'd gone to get some groceries. On the way back home, he stopped near the beach and just parked his car for a moment. While he was in the car by himself, the police tapped on his window and issued him with a $1,000 fine. We had a child who has an intellectual disability who was fined three separate times of $1,000 for being on the street by himself. We also had two nurses who were coming back from a a long um, stint of work on an aged care ward who were going into the supermarket to buy some food for dinner and were fined for being in the supermarket together. 
We also had a lot of people, uh, including a social worker who worked on a COVID ward, who was walking around the park by himself and rang his mother on his phone and he was sitting on a park bench by himself next to no one and was issued with a $1,000 fine. So what we were seeing before our practice is the law being applied incorrectly and people not being able to seek some form of review as to explain why they were undertaking what they did in the first place. Okay, but can we go back and maybe relook at the fines and work out which were appropriate, which involved deliberate flouting of the law and which were inadvertent or there was a very good reason um, for the actions that the, the people took. Is it possible to go back or would you argue all of the fines need to be tossed out? I would argue that all the fines need to be thrown out and that is also what Her Honour has concluded in her judgment regarding these fines. And... Does this class of fines include the people who very deliberately gathered for anti-vax demonstrations? Yes, it does. That's an area that a lot of people concentrate on, but from the statistics that we gathered from Revenue New South Wales and New South Wales Police on where fines were issued, the majority of fines were issued to those in low socioeconomic areas of New South Wales and also in areas of high Aboriginal populations, areas of very high financial and social disadvantage. Also, over 2 million million dollars in fines were issued to children and those fines uh, were in the $1,000, $3,000 or $5,000 fine mark. So a lot of fines were issued to people that were not flouting the laws. In fact, the majority of fines were issued to people that were not flouting the laws and were issued because police got the law wrong. Sam Lee, a Principal Lawyer with the Redfern Legal Centre, thank you for speaking to The Law Report. Thank you for your interest in this uh, really important issue. The Law Report asked New South Wales Police if the withdrawal of two contested fines that were due to be heard in court on Tuesday was connected to the Supreme Court judgment and also if it indicated that all others would also be withdrawn. In a statement, New South Wales Police said simply that it's currently considering the judgment in Beam and Ells and the Commissioner of Police. But just as we hit deadline, Sam Lee has forwarded an email from the Office of the Chief Magistrate of New South Wales. It says legal advice has been sought to determine to what extent both pending and finalised matters may be affected by this decision. And in the interim, it requests all pending matters be adjourned. Watch this space. When Russia invaded Ukraine, many countries imposed trade sanctions. But efforts to economically isolate Russia have been undermined by the rise of the so-called Dark Fleet. These oil tankers go under the radar, both literally, by switching off their GPS, and metaphorically, by hiding behind opaque ownership structures and contract documents. Michelle Wiesbockman is a London-based energy commodities and shipping analyst with Lloyd's List, a publication which reports on the shipping industry. What exactly is the Dark Fleet and how big is it? 
Well, the Dark Fleet is the name that we give to a group of, say, about 450, 500 tankers, all of which are solely deployed on shipping sanctioned oil for either Russia, Iran or Venezuela. It's about 10% of the total trading fleet by capacity now, and it's really emerged as a response to sanctions and doubled in, in size since the Western governments decided to sanction Russia's oil and shipping industry. So what sanctions have been imposed on Russian oil exports since the beginning of the, the war? And they have, over time, been ramping up, haven't they? That, that's right. The most important sanctions were those related to the oil price cap that were imposed on exports on December 5 for crude oil and February 5 for refined products. And that means that Western marine service providers such as charters, ship owners, oil traders, etc., cannot ship Russian oil to third-party countries unless they are compliant with this oil price cap. So while a coalition of Western countries have agreed to impose sanctions, that doesn't necessarily stop oil tankers, wherever they might be based, from trying to circumvent these sanctions? Well, the purpose of the sanctions isn't to actually stop Russian oil flowing. That's why there is an oil price cap. The purpose is to deprive the the Putin regime of money. So because the ownership isn't known of the dark fleet, they are able to export without complying with the price cap. So, for example, you could have a ship that is flagged in Panama. The ownership structure could involve the British Virgin Islands. It could involve the United Arab Emirates and also India. Who owns that vessel isn't known. So, it's not possible to identify and therefore impose any ban or any penalty on that vessel. And also, you have to look at the destination of the vessels. A lot of them, especially when we're talking not only about Russian crude, but Iranian and Venezuelan crude that's also subject to sanctions, the ultimate destination is China. And so, there's been very little appetite, especially for US regulators, to penalise the end receivers of those cargoes. So, in, in that respect, Sankum's circumvention and sanctions breaching has gone unpenalised and it's sort of outside the reach of Western governments. And that's because the ownership structures and the contract structures are so complex that it's hard to get to the bottom of of who's agreed to do what and for what price. Yes, and that's that's typical in shipping. It's often exploited, you know, normal tax havens, but this is particularly complex And there's also a range of deceptive shipping practices that further make it difficult to find out who the ship owner is and where the cargo is going. One of the practices we see, for example, ship-to-ship transfers. So what will happen is that a a cargo will say, will will leave the Baltic Russian port of Primorsk. It will then sail to an area in international waters of Gibraltar, and the cargo will then be transferred to another tanker, a larger tanker, and then it will sail around the Cape of Good Hope. Ultimate destination will be China. So what sorts of tactics do the Dark Fleet engage in to avoid detection? 
One of the most common techniques is to switch off vessel tracking devices known as the automatic identification system. It's the equivalent of the black box of, a, of an aircraft. And what vessels do is they will turn it off in order to avoid anybody knowing that they've been in a particular location. And they can also spoof signals so they can say they're in one place when they're really in another. And so that is used to avoid people knowing that they've taken on a new cargo. So while there's a ship to ship transfer, they may actually turn it off or they may go to and call it a port and not have their vessel their vessel tracking on. And presumably there's a lot of falsification of documents and even just painting over you know, names on chips and rebadging them willy-nilly. Yeah, the, the very worst is, especially with Venezuela, where it's quite common for somebody to give a, a lick of paint to the, the outside of the vessel and to try and mask where, where the ship is, is from and what, what its name is. And you also see vessels painting their decks because if they've turned off their vessel tracking device, they can still be detected through new technology, satellites, for example. And so by painting their decks, they hope that they will trick observers into thinking that it, it's not really the ship they think it is because it's got a deck a different colour. I mean, that, that's the most rudimentary forms of, of um, deceptive shipping practice we see. It, it can be incredibly sophisticated or it can be, you know, as basic as um, putting a, a lick of paint to alter the ship's physical appearance. Do you see dangers, potential accidents on the high seas in this sphere of the Dark Fleet? I, I maintain that the Dark Fleet is an accident waiting to happen. These vessels are very old, poorly maintained in, in most cases, and they operate outside normal international maritime conventions and regulations. Therefore, it's really, unfortunately, only a matter of time before there is an oil spill or some sort of environmental threat. They also travel through choke points. The Singapore Straits is an area where Asia-bound tankers will have to go through. Unfortunately, as I said, they're just an accident waiting to happen. And only then will I think that countries will take a decent look at what's happening with this dark fleet and try and manage them so that they are better regulated Michelle Weiss-Bockman, analyst with Lloyd's List. Barrister Dr Claudio Bossi teaches maritime law at Deakin University. He agrees that dark fleet tankers are an accident waiting to happen. But worse still, these ageing tankers doing their best to go under the radar are not insured. Because of the lack of insurance and the importance of marine insurance, everyone has an interest in what will happen to these vessels. So why can't they get insurance? Is that because maritime insurance is a largely Western-based industry and the Western-based insurers have to comply with the sanctions? Is that what you're saying? Yes. The geostrategic importance of marine insurance is one of the most powerful tools that this Western alliance has in this effort to stem the sale of lucrative commodities uh, from Russia to purchaser countries. Most of the insurance is concentrated in the West. Most of it indeed is a syndicate of Lloyds of London. So it's very concentrated. So to clarify, 
the dark fleet, because they're busting sanctions, they can't get insurance from Western insurers, you know, Lloyd's in London, which, which kind of dominates this internationally. Also, I'm imagining if a ship is flagged in a Western country, it also has to comply. So for both those reasons, uh, tankers are, are going dark to, to, to avoid scrutiny, to, to avoid detection of what they're actually doing. Yes. So as well as, you know, turning off the GPS tracking, um, as well as uh, those sorts of strategies, we're also talking about chains of contract around ownership of a tanker, but also around the goods or or the oil being transported. Uh, Incredibly complex uh, chains of documentation. Yes, it is complex. And it becomes even more complex because, of course, Voyages can be very long. A voyage from Russia to China, for example, and back to home port can be 123 days. I'm just using that as an example. But voyages tend to be very long. And during a voyage, cargo can change hands because of an exchange of contracts on land without the vessel being aware of it several times. So it adds even further to that layer of uh, complexity. As well as kind of allowing the Putin regime to, to reap enormous profits to, to fund its, 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 its war, its invasion of Ukraine. What do you see as the biggest danger associated with this dark fleet? Is it around the lack of insurance under which many of these um, journeys are being taken? Yes, largely. Uh, The risk of accident is increasing. Uh, The sorts of activities that they're involved in, especially um, ship-to-ship transfers, even on the high seas, they've been recorded. It's an inherently risky activity just transporting in certain circumstances. But to add to that, the further risk of ship-to-ship transfers, to add to that, the inability of Uh, ships to know the location of these dark vessels, this phantom fleet. Because they've got the GPS turned off, that's a danger for other ships in the the area. Absolutely. It's a danger for other ships in the area. They uh, risk collision. It's a danger for companies too, because they don't know where their cargo is at any one time. So they have trouble uh, with their due diligence. But I think the greatest danger and it's one that everyone hopes is avoided, is a catastrophic event at sea, um, something that brings us back to the dark days of the 90s and earlier when uh, oil pollution uh, was uh, unfortunately a fact of life. So you're saying that there's a real danger of, of a massive oil spill as a result of, of an accident involving this dark fleet and not only an increased likelihood of an accident because of the practices of the dark fleet, but then a lack of insurance around that which might make clean-up and, and compensation far less likely. That's right. The dark fleet is expanding without insurance and that suggests, A, that accidents are likely to happen, but B, that if they do, then the externality goes to the public, the local people who depend on the marine environment. Um, nature itself pays for it. And of course, society then broadly pays for it too. 
because all of these uh, very massive costs involved with pollution events need to be absorbed somewhere. So we've got a, an insurance black hole. We've got an expanding dark fleet that's engaging in inherently dangerous practices and no doubt an increasingly cash-strapped country needing to fund um, a, a war effort. Dr. Claudio Bossi, lecturer at Deakin Law School with a particular focus on maritime law and international law. Thank you. Thank you for a kind of an illuminating but disturbing conversation about, um, about dark fleets. Thank you very much. That's all we have time for today. A big thank you to producer Christina Kukolia and also to technical producer Tim Jenkins. And on whatever podcast platform you might have found us, please do leave a review. It helps others find us. I'm Damien Carrick. Talk to you next time with more law. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.